Oh. Uh-huh.
What a blessing. That was a good-looking group of kids, wasn't it? We're blessed here. Thank you so much, boys and girls, for leading us in worship. I love 
be seated. If you take your copy of God's Word this morning, please, and be turning to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, taking a break from our study we're doing on 1 John today and, of course, next Sunday for Easter. And we begin to especially remember the Passion Week today on this Palm Sunday. The events on Palm Sunday took place exactly one week before the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Palm Sunday was that Sunday right before the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's called Palm Sunday, of course, because of the palm branches that were used to honor the Lord Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem in his triumphal entry. And this event is recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so it must be a very important event uh, to be recorded in all four Gospels, right? It's something we need to understand and something we need to look at and study. And so we're going to look at the account in Mark's Gospel this morning. Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. If you follow along, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, there should be one in the rack in front of you. If you don't want to, just listen as I read, okay? Mark 11, beginning at verse 1. The Bible says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany, At the Mount of Olives, he, that is Jesus, sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village opposite you. And as soon as you've entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, and so they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all the things as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, as I studied this passage again, a very familiar story, one main theme was impressed upon my heart. Those of you who listen to me preach week in and week out know that we normally take a passage of Scripture and we look at that passage and we take it apart and we examine it. We learn lessons from it and we pretty much stay at that one passage. But today I'm going to deviate just a bit from that normal pattern. I want to follow this theme that the Lord impressed upon my heart while studying studying our Lord's entry into Jerusalem. Now, as you probably a lot of you know, this is actually a fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, we find these words. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. Lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
And so this was prophesied way before in Zechariah. And now fast forward, we have the Lord Jesus fulfilling this prophecy. Here he comes riding on that colt of the donkey. But did you catch those words in Zechariah 9 as I read them, where it says the Lord Jesus came lowly and riding on a donkey. The theme that the Lord impressed upon my heart, the theme that just resonated with me this past week was the humility of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, his humility. Andrew Murray, a well-known uh, author and pastor from years gone by, in one of his books asked this question, what is Jesus's chief characteristic? What is Jesus's chief characteristic? The root and essence of all his character is our Redeemer. He says there can only be one. There can only be one chief characteristic. And Andrew Murray's uh, answer was this. It is his Humility, the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see it clearly in the passage before us as he comes in lowly riding on that donkey. And we'll look at that more in a few moments. But really, we see this theme throughout his whole life, do we not? We see it, first of all, in his birth. We know the Lord Jesus Christ did not begin in Bethlehem. That was the beginning of his incarnation. That is his coming in the flesh. Perfect God and perfect man joined in the flesh. That's the beginning of that, but not the beginning of Jesus. Jesus as God existed for all eternity. He is God. He enjoyed perfect fellowship and harmony and unity and completeness within the the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But God decided to create man. And then he put man in that perfect environment, that perfect garden, with just one thing he could not do. And man decided to do that very one thing. That he could not do. And he sinned and he plunged all humanity into sin. And so man needed a redeemer. So God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to take our place. We celebrate this when? At Christmas, right? We celebrate the coming of the God-man. We celebrate the incarnation. Perfect God, perfect man. But listen, how did he come? Did he come being birthed in a palace? No. We find, as you look at the scriptural account, that he was uh, born in a stable, laid in an animal's food trough. Uh, he was not announced to the high and mighty. He was not proclaimed in that way. No, he was announced to a bunch of shepherds out on the hillside. His mother and his adopted father, he was virgin born, so his adopted father, they were not uh, people of great means. They were not people of great notoriety and fame. He took upon himself a humble, lowly life, a humble experience. We see that humility in his birth in the way he came. But we also see that humility in his death. Think about it. To die on a cross was a horrific thing. And Jesus Christ voluntarily laid down his life on that cross. He who did nothing wrong. He who was perfect. He who had never known sin became sin for us. Why? That we might have eternal life. Would you listen as it says in Philippians 2, these words, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Listen, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. 
Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Listen, but made himself of no reputation. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He humbled himself and died on that cross for you and for me. We sang about it earlier. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. Something we should cherish as we sang. The one who had the power to call 12 legions of angels to rescue him. The one, beloved, who could have spoken the world out of existence. He spoke it into existence. He could have said the word and the whole world would be gone. But he's the one who humbled himself and died on a cross, crucified in agony for you and for me. He humbled himself and died in our place. We see his humility in his birth. We see his humility in his death. But we also see it in between. We see it in his life. Here's the one that went around uh, preaching and healing and feeding and doing so much for others. Uh, He's the one who is the servant. We see him at one point even stooping and washing the feet of his disciples. Showing them what a true servant is. His ministry was one of service and humility. And even when he chose to make himself known as the Messiah, that's what he's doing here. As he chooses to make himself known as the Messiah to all those in Jerusalem, we see this characteristic of humility shining so beautifully as he comes riding lowly, riding on the colt of the donkey. Now we notice he came in riding on this colt. In fact, Matthew tells us that um, Matthew 21 two, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. So probably the colt and the mother there. And they come. He comes riding in on that colt. Into Jerusalem. Lowly. Now, what does all that mean? What is it? What's the significance of the colt? Well, three thoughts that are worth noting. Concerning the cult, as I've studied. Number one, as I learned, the cult was a symbol of peace. You see, Jesus came to bring peace. He did not come riding a war horse. He did not come in that fashion. He came lowly riding on the colt of a donkey, a picture of peace, a symbol of peace. Likewise, it was a symbol of service. You see, the colt, the the donkey, was a noble animal. It was an animal used in the service of men to carry their burdens. And and Jesus came upon that colt, symbolizing that he came to serve men to bear their burdens, to be a blessing to them. But it's also a picture of sacredness, because it very clearly says that this colt had never been ridden before. Those of you who know anything about horses, donkeys, or anything, imagine taking something that's never been written before. And we know that the Bible talks about in Numbers 10.2 and Deuteronomy 21.3 and 1 Samuel 6.7 that animals used for sacred purposes needed to be animals that had not been used before. And so it shows us here, this detail points to the sacredness of this event. 
Jesus deliberately takes every precaution to proclaim that he is the sacred hope. He is the promised Messiah. And he comes in riding on that colt of the donkey, a picture of peace, a picture of service, a picture of sacredness. As he comes, it says, lowly riding on a donkey. But did you notice, likewise, where the cult came from? Beloved, we're talking about Jesus' humility. Did you notice this was not Jesus' cult? Now, now as God, of course, it was his. Because God owns everything. From a human standpoint, it wasn't his. He didn't have a cult. It was borrowed. Think about that. The Lord of glory. God in the flesh borrowed a colt to ride into Jerusalem as the Messiah. Did you notice that he did not have a saddle as you read that? Now imagine that. Here's the Lord of glory. He doesn't have a saddle. In fact, they took some clothes and put it up on him, according to verse 7, to serve as a kind of saddle. He didn't have one. I love what old J.C. Ryle said about Jesus. He said this was in perfect keeping with all the tenor of his ministry. He never had any of the riches of this world. When he crossed the Sea of Galilee, it was in a borrowed boat. When he rode into the holy city, it was on a borrowed beast. And realize this, beloved. When he was buried, he was buried where? In a borrowed tomb. Do you see the humility of the Lord of glory? As he comes riding lowly on this colt. Oh, what a savior. Oh, what a savior. As I look at him here, I say he's the humble king. Those words don't often go together, do they? The humble king. But here he is, the humble king, riding in, declaring to all there, I am the Messiah. I am the sent one. I am here to bear your burdens. I'm the one you've been looking for. And as I look at this, beloved, and I think about his humility, I ask this question, what should be our response? Well, I think our response should be the same as that crowd's response that day. Notice their praise and their celebration here in Mark 11. It says they went out and they took the branches and they're waving them, laying them down. They put the clothes, they take off their outer garments, their coats and tunics and things, lay them out before. And they're crying out there, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And they're praising him. Did they understand all that was happening here? I'm not sure they did. I think some want an immediate relief and, 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 and for him to conquer Rome and all there. Because Hosanna has the idea of save now, save we pray. But they're, they're, they're praising him nonetheless. They spread out their garments and the branches. They cried to Hosanna. They blessed him. And I want you to notice that they were not bashful in their praise of Jesus Christ. Did you notice this was a public proclamation? This was public praise. They didn't hide. They didn't take their coats and pull their heads and say, Hosanna. They didn't hide behind the branches. They publicly praised him and celebration and victory here. They didn't disguise themselves. They publicly praised him. They were not bashful about it. They were not ashamed to praise him. Let me ask you, are we ashamed? Are we ashamed? You know, it's easy in here, isn't it? Oh, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Glory. Amen. What about out there? 
What about the streets and byways and highways and businesses and schools and offices? Are we ashamed to praise the Lord of glory? Are we ashamed to speak his name? Are we ashamed to share the gospel? Are we ashamed to stand up for Jesus Christ? I noticed this crowd. They were not bashful. They were not ashamed. They cried out, Hosanna to God in the highest. And they praised him. Now, I'd be remiss today if I didn't ask you this question. That's this. Do you know the humble king today? Do you personally know him? Now, I shared earlier that this was a fulfillment of prophecy, and it was. Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. But, you know, if you read the next verse, we see a different picture. Listen to Zechariah 9, 10. Because Zechariah 9, 9 is past. Jesus fulfilled that. Well, that's done. The triumphal entry is complete. But Zechariah 9, 10, listen to what it says. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, now we don't see that here in Mark 11. We don't see that in the triumphal entry. Why? Because it's future. You see, we already see his triumphal entry in Zechariah 9, 9. But, but we look at verse 10 and we see the future. That is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is coming. He will rule and reign in victory. He will rule with a rod of iron. But here's what I want to point out to you. Now, 9 is past and, and verse 10 is future. What does that mean? That means we're living in between. Zechariah 9, 9. And Zechariah 19. So what do you mean, preacher? We're, we're living in between those two verses in an age of grace. An age of grace. That is, he's giving us time to respond to the King of glory. He's giving us time to repent of our sin and place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, beloved, Jesus was headed to Jerusalem that week. This triumphal entry to complete what he came to do. What was he going to do? He was going to die in our place. Now, now, because we know the rest of the story, he will rise again victorious the next Sunday. We're going to celebrate that next Sunday, the Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. But here we, we back up on this Palm Sunday. And because of this week. Because of what happens during this week, because of his death and his burial and then his resurrection, he purchased our pardon. He's made a way. The Bible says the only way of salvation for us to be brought back into a right relationship with God. See, sin has placed a great gulf between a holy God and us. The Bible says all have sinned. Everybody's sinned. We're sinners by nature and sinners by choice. And there's a great gulf fixed between us and the Holy God. But God loved us so much He sent His Son to die in our place. That's what He's going to do during this week. And He rises again victorious next Sunday. And because He does, that gulf, that great chasm has been bridged by the Savior, Jesus Christ. And He says, I'm the only way to the Father. I'm the only way to God. And the Bible says if you will turn from your sin. 
and place your faith in Jesus Christ alone, you will be saved. He says he'll forgive you of your sin. He'll make you a son or daughter of God. He'll make you an heir and join heir of the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll give you a home in heaven for all eternity. Beloved, he'll give you new life, make you a new creature. Old things pass through. Behold, all things become new if you'll take him by grace through faith. And so I ask you again, again today, do you know this humble king? Do you know the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, let me encourage you. Let me plead with you. Let me beg you today. Don't leave this place until that's settled. And sure, that you know the King of glory. He's your Savior and He's your Lord. I close this morning with the words of that crowd, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of our Father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Amen. And amen. Let's pray. Father. Thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son to die for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, your word says. Now, Father, I pray that if anybody here has never turned from their sin and placed their faith in Jesus Christ, I pray in these next few moments as we sing this closing hymn, they would allow somebody to take a Bible and sit down with them and share Christ and lead them to the cross where they'll find forgiveness and cleansing and hope and peace. Lord Jesus, thank you for your humility. Humbling yourself to come and take upon yourself flesh. Living such a humble life. Lord, and then that lowly death. But thank you that you are now victorious, risen, living, and soon coming. Thank you for the hope that is ours in Christ. Thank you for this time between Zechariah 9.9 and 9.10. Lord, may we be proclaiming your gospel to everyone we share. May we never be ashamed to praise and worship you. May we cry out your praise in every place for your honor and your glory. Holy Spirit, do a work in this place today. A work that only you can do. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Our closing hymn this morning is 312. And very simply, as we're going to do. As we sing, I'll be at the front. If you'd like to be saved today, just simply come. Say, preacher, I'd like to meet the Lord Jesus and I'll take you. I'll welcome you. I'll just take you by the hand, place you as someone who loves Jesus, loves you. They'll take and sit down with you at the Bible and share Christ. That's all we're going to do. So I would invite you to come today. And that song that we begin to sing, 312, softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Now maybe you're already saved today. Maybe God has spoken to your heart today. You might come in prayer. Worship Him in a special way. Think about His humility and what He did for you. I'd invite you to come and heal the song today. Praise Him and thank Him and worship Him. So I hope you have patience for you to be saved today. Just come and let me know that. We'll help you with that. If you want to come and pray for that, that softly, tenderly, Jesus calls, come home, come home. 312, you come as we sing, as we stand. 312, let's stand and sing.